I appreciate that this conference is on the doctrine of scripture. I think this is, uh, I can't think of anything more important that we could get together and talk about than the word of God, the very words of God. And uh, really on the topic of the authority of the scriptures, I've, I, I think I've kind of needed to be forced for a while to really think through this. And this is a great opportunity, I guess, selfishly speaking, uh, to be able to dive into this uh, a little bit more in depth than I probably otherwise would have, so that's great. And uh, there, is, uh, there are some dangers always with going first. I don't want to get into anybody else's lane today and talking about other you know, areas, but um, there's also a real benefit to going first, and that is all, you, all you're supposed to do when you're first is get on base, right? And everyone else is going to bat you around eventually, hopefully. That's, that's your guys' job. I'm just, I'm just trying to get a walk here, right? So uh, on the topic of God's word, um, just been reminded even this past year, I'll just share a little bit about what we've been doing at our church, particularly in regard to our kids' club on Wednesday nights. Uh, we ended up kind of going away from our curriculum that we'd done for many, many years, and, and we kind of said, I don't know what we're going to do, but we need to teach these kids the Bible. And we ended up, we're, we started going through Psalm 19, and I'm telling you, it's been such a blessing. Uh, if you're familiar with Psalm 19, it's a passage where it talks about God's revelation in the world, but also in the Word. It starts with, the heavens declare the glory of God, but then it goes uh, to, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and it really tells about the, the story about, about God's word, and it ends with, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And we've been working with these little children on memorizing the entire psalm. And I can't tell you what a blessing it's been to just look at the word together and point them to the word. And so we need to be like little children when it comes to the word of God and be learners, every one of us. And so that's what we get to do today. I'm excited. I'm actually more excited to learn, I think, by far and by, by uh, listening the rest of the day um, than I am even to be up here. And that's saying something because I, I really do relish this, this opportunity. Uh, we, before we talk specifically about the authority of Scripture this morning, I want to talk for a few minutes about the, the concept of authority in general. Now, we're all familiar with the idea of authority, but I like simplicity. And I'm not sure how many of you have had your coffee yet, or at least enough coffee this morning. And so I just want to make sure, on a real basic level, we're all on the same page. And I'd like to propose uh, a simple working definition of authority. And that is a right to command or to give a final decision. A right to command or to give a final decision. Another way we could say it is this. Authority is that which lays claim to your submission. Something that is authoritative is binding upon both your beliefs and your behavior. Now, I, I don't think that I'm going out on a limb to say this this morning, but with that definition in mind, would you agree with me that authority is not exactly popular in our world today? It's, really, it's an increasingly unpopular concept in the minds of many people in our day, uh, authority means power, and power, of course, means corruption. And so there you have it, right? Authority is bad. And you see that everywhere. A lot of people claim that they don't like the idea of authority, but, you know, the reality is authority is actually unavoidable. You, you can't get away from it. And in fact, the harder you try to get away from authority, the harder it will eventually hit you. Do you realize that? I grew up, uh, I, I had a distant relative when I was growing up, 
who every time I was with him, uh, we were close enough to the same age where he would complain about his parents and all the rules. And I happen to know that they were not nearly as strict as my own parents. But, but he was always hitting his head against the wall of his parents' restrictions in, in really pretty brazen fashion. Uh, and so what he did when he finally had the freedom to get out from underneath that, guess what he did? He went into the military. That's exactly what you should do, right? If you're fleeing authority. How many of you have been in the military? Okay. Uh, was that a great place to flee authority? Probably not, right? So he goes into the military. He, uh, unfortunately, he ends up getting a dishonorable discharge. And he comes back home, and, and then he finds more authority because he finds out that it wasn't just his mom and his dad, and it wasn't just those mean people in the military. It's also our government just in the you know, everyday life. And so he ends up spending quite a bit of time in jail. Because the harder you try to get away from authority, the, the harder it's going to hit you eventually. Even those who claim to hate authority, like we just talked about, what they really mean by that is if they had the authority to change things, they would have a different authority. That's all they mean. You can't get away from the concept of authority. Now, why is that? Well, it's because of where authority comes from. It comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Authority is ultimately from God, and God created the universe in such a way that authority is simply a reality. It's woven into and embedded into the, the world in which we live. And even from general revelation, just from the, the created order, we can perceive that this whole concept of authority really rests on timeless realities. Timeless realities like truth, for instance. The fact that some things just are the way they are. Up is always up, and down is always down. And when you try to mess up that order, you will find out very quickly that really is an authority. Truth is inherently authoritative. I was telling a story just this morning with a couple guys who are here about us. Uh, <laughs> uh, I won't tell the whole story, but I, when I was in college, uh, a buddy and I made an infomercial about how you can fly with, if you just have the right kind of foam to put on your, your arms. The problem is, uh, and it was just a dumb infomercial that we put online, and one of my friend's three-year-old son saw this video. And so what did he do? He, he tried this at home. Remember when they say, don't try this at home? He didn't get that message. So he tried this at home, and he jumped out his second-story window, fell in a bush, completely fine, okay? But, but the, the, the point is that, that three-year-old had to learn a really hard lesson that gravity is a law. We call it a law because it always works, right? So the truth, really, even on that basic level, is inherently authoritative, and woven into the created order also is this idea of dominion. We see this on the very first page of our Bibles, don't we? God tells Adam, have dominion, which means that there are bound to be, as, as, the, as the population grows, there are bound to be positions of authority, not just of men over beasts and other things and the, and the, and the, and the fields, but also authority over each other. There are going to be Positions of authority, which include implicitly the right to command, the right to enforce, and then there are going to be positions of submission. So this authority that we see embedded in the created order, it really all points to the fact that there is a creator who is ultimately authoritative. Authority flows from the one who is the creator and the ruler of all things. 
That's exactly what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, when he says, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That means that all earthly authority is derived authority. It all flows from the one who is the authority. Go, go figure. The author of creation is the authority. Right? Those two words have a lot to do with each other. There's a, a relationship there that, that fits. As the, as the creator and sustainer of the world, God is the owner of this world. He's the owner of everything in this world. And he's the judge of all the earth. So from the very first page of our Bibles, we witness the authoritative God overall at work. And we see it from the very first page. We see him at work through his word. Right away, when we open our Bibles, we see this wondrous, repeated theme, let there be, and it was so. Again, let there be, and it was so. Let there be, and it was so, all the way throughout the entire first chapter. The authoritative word of God is already at work right from the very beginning. And the psalmist summarizes the authoritative word of God in creation in this way. Psalm 33, 6 through 9, says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Now, as I read that just now, you, you may have noticed that the psalmist doesn't just tell us that God is the creator. He tells us in no uncertain terms what is the only right response to the authority of God in creation. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That verse is really important. It, it tells us that the role of the creature is really to do two things. It's to recognize the authority that God inherently has. To recognize that authority and to respond rightly. Whether a person recognizes it or not, it doesn't change the reality. This is an important point for us to keep in mind as we now turn to look more specifically at the authority of Scripture. Because this God who's Authority, we ought to recognize, has spoken to us through his written word. I'm sure many of you, if not all, are familiar with 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Another translation says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And the emphasis here in this passage is not really on the process by which God did this, the, the, the real point that Paul is getting at here is the source. What is the source of all scripture, which in that case is referring to the Old Testament, by, but by extension we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's, it's God-breathed. The point is this, the scriptures are the very words of God, every word. We could say it this way, what scripture says God says. And as it is the word of God, who is our maker and our sustainer 
and our owner and our judge, that means that not only is that maker inherently authoritative, his word is inherently authoritative. It means it's authoritative in and of itself on the basis of its inspiration and on the basis of its inerrancy, which we'll hear about in just a little bit. One theologian, John Feidberg, said it this way, Scripture is authoritative because of what it is. The true word of an absolutely sovereign God. This means that just as we recognize God as authoritative, we must recognize, again, there's that word, recognizing the Bible as authoritative. By the way, it says all Scripture. That means Scripture in its entirety. Now, that doesn't mean that every passage is binding on us in exactly the same way. Through the progress of Revelation, we work hard to understand what it is that God requires of us as opposed to what God required of his people a couple thousand years ago, right? But all scripture is authoritative. It doesn't mean that we only claim part of it. I just saw a post yesterday that was a good reminder for us. There are not 27 books in the Bible. There are 66 So it's all authoritative, even though it's not binding exactly in the same way or applied in the same way. We ought to be like the Thessalonians who received the the apostolic teaching not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. Now, the, the reason I'm making such a big deal out of this inherent authority of the word of God and our right response to it is, is, well, it's because it really is a big deal. Right? Throughout centuries of church history, there have been a lot of, there's been a lot of debate about how the word gets its authority. And really that debate has existed on several fronts. I won't take time to talk about all those, uh, not even close. But I will say this, many liberal theologians claim that scripture is authoritative when it has some kind of existential impact on a person or on a group of people. And what that really reduces the scriptures to is, well, that's good for you. Have you ever had someone tell you that before? Maybe you're sharing your faith, you're sharing the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone, and they don't believe that. And they say, well, that's good for you. But the excuse there is that it's not authoritative to me, it's authoritative to you. You do you. The problem is, what do we just say about authority? You can't escape it. If God's word is authoritative, it's not just authoritative to the people who surrender to it. When the Bible doesn't have that existential impact, is it still authoritative? Well, let's go back to gravity. Is it still a thing? Even if you refuse to believe in its existence, yes, the laws of nature don't require an okay from you. To, to work, and neither does God's word. I remember I, I grew up singing a song. How many of you have ever heard the song, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Okay, anybody ever heard that song before? I grew up singing that song. I would belt it out in VBS when I was a little kid. I won't sing it for you. Uh, but that song is actually wrong, at least in the order in which it presents that, right? It should be God said it, that settles it, and I believe it. Right? 
So that's one way that people have gotten this idea of the, the source of God's authority entirely wrong. Probably the most common way, though, is that the, the Roman Catholic Church affirms that Scripture is authoritative because the magisterium has decreed it, has decreed it to be so. You see the problem here? If, if the church is the one that confers authority to the Bible, that means that the ultimate authority lies not in the Bible, but in the leader or leaders of the church. I don't know how many of you are football fans, been following at all what's going on with the Minnesota Vikings and you know new, new blood in the front office and the coaching staff and all of that. When, when an announcement is made about a head coach, can you imagine what would have happened in the Twitterverse and you know social media and all of this, if they had said, you know what, we're actually going to have two head coaches. Everyone would laugh at that. Why? Because you know that ultimately that authority is going to flow to one who is answerable. right? It has to flow to one person. This idea that there is authority conferred, but that that authority is actually shared, it cannot be. This gets to the heart, really, of what Martin Luther's problem was with, with, with the Roman Catholic Church at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, of course, championed the, the truth of justification by faith. When you think of Reformation, you probably think justification by faith alone, and that's right. But when, when Luther was ordered to recant his views of justification at the Diet of Worms in April of 1521, almost 100 uh, almost 501 years ago now, Luther pointed to the foundation for his beliefs, which revealed that the the Protestant Reformation was just as much about the authority of God's word, sola scriptura, as it was about sola fide, faith alone. So Luther is brought to this point by the Roman Catholic Church. They tell him, you must recant your views and one of them, really, uh, one of the things that was at stake was he was saying that the, the Pope can err. Well, here's how Luther responds. He says, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. That's a huge phrase. Is your conscience captive to the word of God, as that which lays claim to your submission. Is that which is binding on your beliefs and your behavior. Luther continues, I cannot and will not recant of anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. The thing that really irked the Roman Catholic Church was Luther's belief that only the scriptures are infallible. That was a slap in the face of the magisterium, and they couldn't allow it. But Luther banked everything on the authority of the word. And I would also add, on the accompanying inner testimony of the authority of the word by the Holy Spirit. I think that's implied very strongly here. When, when Luther says the scripture, and he's also talking about his conscience, I believe that includes the testimony, the work of the Holy Spirit, not just in, in the word itself, showing the word to be authoritative, self-authenticating, but also for the Holy Spirit to open his eyes and to see it as authoritative. And by the way, for all who are in Christ, if you are a child of God here this morning, that means that you have received the Holy Spirit. That, that 
that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And one of the ministries of the indwelling Spirit is that he confirms and he attests to the authority of the word in you. I'm going to give you a couple references that you can chase down later on on that. 1 John 2.20 talks about how the Holy Spirit has been given to us and that is how we know truth. 1 Corinthians 2.10-12, Paul is talking about the natural man and how he cannot understand the things because they are spiritually discerned. But you, he says, have received the Spirit. And so you understand the authority of the Word of God. I hope that you know Jesus Christ. I hope, I hope you're here this morning as one who's just wanting to learn. Of course, if, if you're not, this is uh, the truth. And it is authoritative, again, for you, whether you believe it right now or not. But if you're a believer in this room, you have the Holy Spirit who's pointing that out to you, don't you? You open the Word, it's like no other book. These aren't some things to consider. You know, you read another book and you think, yeah, I'll, I'll have to think about that. Right? No, the Bible is completely different. You come to it, and when you, when you read it, you're actually under it. You should be submitting to it. So Luther held to the authority of Scripture alone. The Pope can err. Councils can err. Creeds and confessions can err. But Scripture cannot. Now from that famous affirmation by Luther that I read just a moment ago, came a phrase which I'm sure you've heard, I mentioned it already, sola scriptura, scripture alone. That means that scripture alone is our ultimate authority. But I do want to point out one thing about that. That is this, sola scriptura does not mean that creeds and confessions and councils or philosophy and etc. are of little to no value. That's not sola scriptura, that's nuda scriptura. That's bare scripture. And that's not what Luther was saying, and it's not what you should hold to either. It's not even biblical, which is really ironic, actually, when you think about it. It's a naive and dangerous way of viewing theology and church history. It'll expose you to far more error if you hold to the the scriptures as nuda scriptura. Creeds and, and confessions are important but they must be held up to the light of the one ultimate authority of the scriptures. Now, in the time we have remaining, I'd like to look at how we ought to apply. And by the way, uh, I've been looking for a clock, and I'm not seeing one, so I'm going to just, maybe you'll wave your arms at me when I need to be done. How about that? There you go. Oh, wow. All right. Well, we're done. Get one more pitch to get that walk. Yeah. In the time we have remaining, I'd like to look at how we ought to apply the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. And I'd like to point to examples in each from the the life of Christ. One well-known, concise way that Christians have framed the applications of Scripture's authority is this. Scripture is the supreme and ultimate source and norm of life and doctrine. That sounds like a mouthful. I'm going to repeat it, but it's very important. Scripture is the supreme and ultimate source and norm of life and doctrine. I want to unpack that a bit. What this means is that Scripture ought to be the supreme shaping influence in the development and in the discipline of your beliefs and in your behavior. Did you know that you are a theologian? Did you know that? It's, it's true. Every one of you 
always are further shaping your understanding of who God is. The question is, are you doing that purposefully? Are you doing that carefully? And are you appealing to an open Bible? I mean, this is, this is our food. This is where we get everything. Does Scripture have the final say in your theology? Or do you ultimately end up appealing to your upbringing or your experience or your traditions? And by the way, I'll just say this. We ought to have a healthy dose of self-doubt that we will be likely to go those directions before we go to Scripture. We get comfortable, don't we, with doing life the way we're used to doing it? And what we need, once again, is to go to the mirror of God's word and see what it says and see how it testifies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then we look, we look at it as a mirror, which exposes to ourselves our own flaws. And then as James says, we don't just see that and say, okay, I, I've considered that and now I'm going to go my way. No, we stop right there and we repent. We cleanse our hands. We purify our hearts because we're double-minded. And then we find grace because God always gives more grace. So we look to the word and we find the grace of Christ, but it does require change. It does require obedience. So I want to look at an example of how to look at doctrine in the light of scripture. And I, I want to go, you can be turning to John chapter 10. How often in the gospels do we find Jesus teaching us and reminding us once again that scripture must have the last word. How many, it'd be a really interesting study. I have not done this. Maybe this is something you might want to do sometime. How many, how many conversations ended with Jesus Christ quoting scripture? As the last word, the authoritative word of God, conversation over because an appeal has been made to God himself in the word. We see that really in, in John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is most well known as being the passage in which Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. But we see that after that, these are some very tall claims and he's really confronted by some, some people who are not liking what he's teaching here in John 10. The Jewish leaders are turning up the heat in their pursuit of Jesus. And Jesus has the audacity to say in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, can you imagine how shocking that must have been to Jewish ears? Intolerable. So they pick up stones to throw at Jesus, and he asks them why, and he says, well, you've blasphemed. You, being a man, have made yourself God. And in this dispute over what we could say, this is a doctrinal dispute of sorts, maybe a more feisty one than I've ever been a part of, thankfully, But Jesus takes them to school and he uses their own textbook. He says, isn't it written in your law? I said you were gods. Now, you don't have to raise your hand with this question, but but without looking at the notes in your Bible, how many of you know what passage that's from? I said you were gods. I've read through that passage. It's Psalm 82.6. I've read through it many, many times. Glossed right over it. I think this shows us that Jesus knew he was so steeped in the Old Testament scriptures that 
when push came to shove, when there was a doctrinal dispute or something in his life, he knew exactly where to go because he was so full of the Bible. He was so full of the Old Testament scriptures. So he had just called himself God, and now they're disputing that. And so he says, didn't you read that this text says, I said you were God's? Now he's going to a rather obscure passage. Again, one that I've skipped over. But this is Psalm 82, where God is, is, is really taking ungodly rulers to task. He's really setting up a courtroom, a, a trial, with these ungodly leaders. And he calls them gods, small g. Implying that even the worst of earthly rulers in some way are deputies of the Most High. Carrying out the counsel of his will. Accomplishing his purposes in the world. Jesus continues, he says, If he called them gods, little g, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, he says, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is pointing them right back to their own scriptures. And because his hour had not yet come, he rebuffed their attempt to stone him by pointing to the authority. And in the midst of quoting from them, to, to, from those scriptures to prove his point, he makes a categorical statement about scripture. Did you hear it? Scripture cannot be broken. And that, I believe, in this context, is in reference to the authority of scripture. In other words, the argument ends right here. Because a clear appeal has been made to the scriptures. And you notice after this, they understood it. Because as soon as he's done talking, they don't say, yeah, but all they can do is try to capture him. The argument's over. Now they're just mad and they're trying to kill him. And he gets, his, he gets away because his hour has not yet come. The point is this. Jesus handles debate by going to the word. Jesus handles doctrine by going to the word. I think there's something we see about how well, I talked about it a little bit already, but how well Jesus knew the scriptures. I have to be honest with you. There have been a number of times as a pastor when I hear of some kind of doctrine that's floating through, some idea, and I have to do far more study than I should have to to chase down what the Bible says about that. You know why? Because I don't know the Bible well enough. Not that it's wrong for me to, to hear of something like that and then be sent back to the Bible. If, I mean, that's what we should do, right? But look at how Jesus already knew. He already knew so much Bible. He was already so committed to the authority of the word that he studied it before, before push came to shove. He soaked in it. It wasn't just a reference book for Jesus. And by the way, I think a lot of times we put so much on the divine nature of Jesus that we think that he really rested on that rather than on the word and on the spirit. And I'm just going to say, you don't find that in scripture. Jesus rested on the same gifts that you have, believer. The spirit and the word. So Jesus ends this argument from scripture. But what about in matter, it said, remember what it said, that it, it, in the source and norm of doctrine but also life. Boy, that's a big category. Right? Let's just get down to specifics. Your life, right? But Jesus actually shows us an example, even in the most difficult times of life, for how to go to the authority of the word. 
And we see this, there's two chapters uh, that, are, that are parallel here, Luke chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 4. I'd like us to briefly look at Matthew 4 this morning. A very familiar passage. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, probably the other understatement of Scripture. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, by the, by the way, right there, what is the devil doing? He's undermining the authority of God's word. Why? Well, the baptism of Jesus directly preceded this. And at the baptism of Jesus, what did the Father, who he rended the heavens and the Spirit came down and descended as a dove, and the Father says what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And while his hair is still wet, he goes out into the desert. And the very first thing he hears, other than his own thoughts, is if you are the Son of God. By the way, another great study sometime would be for you to go through the temptation of Jesus in his response. Have your finger in Genesis chapter 3 at the same time and see how the devil works in undermining the authority of the word of God. And by the way, he's doing that still today, isn't he? The devil seeks to undermine the authority. He came to the woman and he said, did God really say? And you could look at the comparison of the, the, lust, the lusts of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of the life that the devil used right there in the garden with, the, with, with Eve and her flesh and she gave in. But here in the desert, Jesus faces really the same exact temptation and he does not give in. And that was for us. If you are the son of God, big question mark there that Satan is wanting to introduce into the mind of, of Jesus. If you are, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The idea here is your father isn't taking care of you. You don't look so good. So you might as well make yourself some bread. And what does Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He appeals directly to the authority of Scripture. And by the way, Jesus is, I think, camping out in a passage in his mind. He doesn't have a scroll out there with him. He's meditating on a passage that is all about wilderness wanderings. This is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, where they're looking back. It's the second giving of the law. And Jesus is looking back, sorry, in Deuteronomy, Moses is second giving of the law, and he's looking back at those wilderness wanderings, and he's pointing out how Israel failed in the wilderness. And when they received manna from God, they should have lived by the very words of God, not just by what he provided for them. So Jesus, in his mind, get the picture, in the wilderness, as soon as the devil comes to him, he's already locked and loaded with a passage that he's been meditating on. Again, the idea is, don't wait, believer, for temptation to come before you arm yourself with the authoritative word of God so that you can respond to the devil because he's going to come to you and say the, exa- the same exact thing. It's what he does. He, are, he really does through the, the course of this world, as we see in Ephesians 2. So he comes and Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And in some sense, right there, the whole temptation saga ended. Why? Because he had established what was binding on him. Jesus right there established. Now he had to hold fast to that. Just as God was preserving him in that time. But right there he established scripture. We see that scripture was his authority. Then the devil takes him to the holy city. He takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, a very public place. And he says, if you're the son of God, there it is again. If you are, then throw yourself down. In other words, you've been... God is not doing a good enough job of vindicating you and saying and, and declaring to the world yet who you are. But angels are going to guard you less, and, and they're going to bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so jump off the pinnacle of the temple where all these people are wa- walking down underneath you and, and then everyone will know that's got to be the Messiah. And once again, Jesus, he rolls back the scroll in his mind just a little bit to Deuteronomy chapter 6, same passage. He says again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now there's a ton right there. But I want to focus for today's, uh, for the topic today, again, it is written, what he was appealing to. And then lastly, the devil takes him up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he says to him, if all these I give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus fails. Strike that. Please check, uh, scratch that in the recording. Jesus succeeds. Jesus triumphs in the same area that Israel had failed. They were there in 40 years for 40 years in the wilderness. He's there for 40 days in the wilderness. He succeeds. They had failed. Jesus succeeds where Eve had failed. And the difference between success and failure is an appeal to the authoritative word of God. In doctrine, yes, but also in your life. In your moment of temptation, Christian, what you need is an appeal to an authoritative document, the documents of the word of God. One last thing I want to say about that. Jesus wasn't just using the word of God. Jesus didn't have little verses scratched out on three by five cards so that when he would encounter a time of temptation, he could look at them and just simply use them. No, he was already, through the word, communing with his father. That was already going on. So I would just implore you believers, don't use the word in that sense. Feast on the word. Commune with God through the word. Embrace the authority of God in his word because it is through the very words of God that you commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there is a relationship there. I've heard a lot of people, a lot of Christians, talk about their relationship with God and not really rest heavily on the scriptures. God spoke to me in this way. You know, God prompted me in this way. And, and, and you want to, without being snarky, you want to say, you have a text for that. Right? Because God speaks to us through the authoritative word of God. And, and believers, we have an opportunity 
to feast on that word and be ready when times come and they will come when different doctrinal ideas are floated out there you can say this is counterfeit because I know the real thing or when a temptation comes this is not right how could I do this sin against God because you already have that communion with him through the word may God help us to live in accordance with the authoritative word of God and, and, and thus enjoy sweet communion with him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. You said in your word that this is the one to whom you will look, the one who is humble, the one who is contrite, and who trembles at your word. Help us not to approach the word today or any time merely as something to consider or to think about. Father, would it reign supreme because it is your word? Father, would you help us to enjoy communion with you as Father, with the Son and with the Holy Spirit through the means that you have given to us and through the confirmation that you have given to us in the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.